Our guest this week studied at Liverpool College of Art at the same time as John Lennon and his future wife, Cynthia Powell, and counted them both as friends. Helen Anderson was lucky enough to watch John Paul and George rehearse in a room at the art school, and when Lennon wanted some new clothes, he would often sketch them for her and ask her to make them. I'm Laura Davis. And I'm Ellen Kerwin. And this is Beatles City. Ellen, this is fascinating. What clothes did you make for John Lennon? Well, he wanted to be really cool back in the day and not a lot of shops were selling the type of clothes that he was after. It was sort of the real, real like American style. So he wanted all sorts of things from it. But one of the things he requested was a special cap, the John Lennon caps that are coming back in fashion now, like a sort of Baker Boy, Baker Boy style. Um, and yes, yeah, so she made them for John Lennon all those years ago. And then um, now they're back in fashion. She's making them again. And you can actually buy them from the Strawberry Field Visitor Centre. But does she have really good memories of John and Cynthia? Really good memories, yeah. She she said, you know, at the time, John was n- not like anybody else she'd met before. He was really energetic. He was always jumping around the place. And a lot of people in that art school were going because they really loved art and they really wanted to sit down and do all these amazing sketches. And John was almost just there for a good time. So did she stay in touch with them? She did. So she, she didn't see him as often as she'd like, but she did um, speak to him on the phone. Um, and one of the, she talk, she talks about actually on the episode one of the last times she spoke to him, which is quite emotional. Oh. Well, we'll let you listen to that. Yeah. Hello, Helen, and thank you for joining us in the Echo offices here in our thank little you. studio. Thank you very much, Helen, and a happy new year to you. Happy new year to you. Hope too. it's a great one for the Echo and and Liverpool, as it always is, and the Beatles City podcast as well. Which is, of course, what you're here for today. Thank you. So you were born in Liverpool, is that right? I was born in Liverpool, yes, born and bred and extremely proud of the fact. Me and my lovely husband, Derek, (laughs) we live about um, a few miles south of the Chester area. And so many people in Liverpool, they all have a story or a connection to the Beatles, but yours is quite rare in the fact that you were really close childhood friends with John Lennon and Mm -hmm. his first wife, Cynthia. Yes. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Uh, yes, um, well I met I met Cynthia before John actually because we were both at Liverpool Art School, uh, junior art school from the age of 12, 13-ish and um, we met there and we were very close friends until we left and moved o- over to the College of Art and um, so uh, yes and then uh, on the first day at college um, I was walking along the blue corridor towards the life classroom for our first life class tuition and um, John Lennon ran over to me and bumped into me, stopped me in my tracks and said, hey, are you the one that painted Lonnie Donegan? (laughs) And um, I said yes, and simply because when I was in my last uh, term at art school over the road at Gambier Terrace, um, I was commissioned to paint Lonnie Donegan from a drawing I'd done that a friend of mine had given him Uh, and he said, who did this and blah blah, bit of a long story but I painted a life-size portrait of this man who was charming and absolutely wonderful and he was a big heartthrob of everybody in, in the country at the time with his skiffle music. So it was quite an honour for me and especially at the age of 16. So I did this life-size, por- life-size portrait of him 
um, which he loved very much and still had until he died, which is interesting. And John said, well, if you painted Lonnie Donegan, you must be really famous. And <laughs> he said, I want to be your mate for life. And we were. We, that's how we struck up our friendship. And then when I discovered how talented John was, he fascinated me. You know, he was, um, he was an enigma even then. There was, I kept finding out more things. So did a few of the other people that, that kind of liked John. A lot of people were afraid of him because he, he, seemed, he seemed a bit aggressive and slightly teddy boy in appearance. But um, there was a sort of little few of us that he had a little coterie of, of, of a team of people of about 12 of us, I think. And uh, we watched everything he did. And very early on, um, Paul and George used to come into the college and have their fish and chips in our, in our canteen that they brought in, brought in from Fortner Street Chip Shop. And um, straight after lunch, which was gobbled down in seconds, um, we'd all go up to room 21, one of our painting tutors' rooms, Arthur Ballard. And um, they would start giving us private recitals. And um, these were young boys. George was only 15 at the time. Uh, Paul was 16, John was 17, I was 16. I'm a year younger than John, my claim to fame. <laughs> um, so, um, yes, and they'd sit in, the, they'd sit in the, um, the corner of the room, make it, they'd make, make a little stage thing, and we'd be sitting around doing our work, and they'd just start playing. And they would play um, music by other people, like um, favourite was Buddy Holly at the time, John, after Lonnie Donegan and Gene Vincent and lots of other, Little Richard and all these. They'd sing all their songs, and they were absolutely incredible. But they also um, did a bit of writing their own ditties. The ones I remember, remember mostly were John's, more than Paul and George. George played more than wrote songs, really, at the time. Anyway, he was a marvellous little guitarist, even at 15. And um, they, sang, um, uh, they sang George Formby songs because... Both George and John were crazy about this Lancashire singer from Wigan or somewhere called George Formby, who was very popular in wartime and post-war. And he was an ugly little old man, but he sang such funny songs. And John absolutely idolised him. And they, um, they, the songs went... Uh, most people are too young to remember George Formby, but I do when I was a, when I was a kid. And um, it was, um, I'm leaning on a lamppost at the corner of the street. Now, I think everybody knows that. And they'd sing this, and it was just hilarious. That was always their sort of finale little group, three songs of George Formby. I'm leaning on a lamppost, and um, a li with me little bit of, uh, me little bit of Blackpool rock, that was another one. And um, so we'd all, we'd all end the afternoon killing ourselves laughing. And, you know, just they, they got bundled out by Arthur Ballard when he came back. He said, out, you lot, <laughs> on your ears. <laughs> and uh, off they went. But this was every day at lunchtime. So they, they had plenty of practice. They had loads of admiration and following. And then the crowd that were, were coming to listen got bigger and bigger, you know, as the weeks went on. But um, there were such fabulous, fabulous days, you know, really. And so what was he like in the classroom sort in, of environment? Because well, obviously you, you had um, our class with him, didn't you? Yes. Uh, well, he was dying to go to the life class because he thought he'd be painting naked girls, <laughs> <laughs> which which we were, but the, they, were, they were not like page three models. You know, they were, they were serious artist models. That had, they had good shapes, good bodies, and all different things. We had a, we had a male model there as well. It used to make us laugh a bit because he was uh, a Trinidadian, boy and he 
thought he had to assume um, poses like Atlas holding the world up on his hand and things like this. And the tutor always used to say, call it, call it, Bacchus his name was, call it Bacchus, you don't need to hold that pose for two hours, just be yourself, you know. Um, of course, John used to do funny scribbles of him. But in general, he didn't do very much work, um, even, in the, even when he was painting the model, when he was dying to paint girls with no bras. He, um, he just drew the model's watch or the pair of slippers she was wearing on the floor, or he put his own characters onto the canvas instead. And I can never remember seeing a drawing of the model in the life class that he'd done, except messy up, messing up, messing around with bits and pieces of what was hanging around her, you know, what she was sitting on. He'd draw the stool she was sitting on. <laughs> it's really strange. But um, I soon learned, um, very quickly, I, I saw his artwork in his um, cartoons and um, caricatures of people. And the, the things that, that we saw were things he'd done at Quarry Bank before he even came to the college. And they were absolutely astonishingly good. And um, he never showed them to the tutors, really. It was just a few of us that liked them. And they were kind of the bordered on the grotesque. Um, and he, he liked to find the most um, nasty or grotesque side of all his characters that he drew. And he also had a kind of mean streak where he would, anybody that was afflicted in any way, he would make fun of them in his drawings. But um, it was quite, it was, it was innocent fun, you know. He was, he was just very, very witty, very dry. And he had a sense of the macabre about his humour as well. And um, to be perfectly honest, everybody thought he was um, extremely aggressive. But I never experienced any aggression with him in those days. I, I, sensed, um, I sensed that he was a little bit nowhere, as he called himself, nowhere boy. But mainly because he didn't really know where he belonged. And, um, you know, he was, his mother was living down the road. He was living with his auntie and uncle. And he, he, was ne he was always unsure of himself. But um, he started coming into his own, I think, in college because he, he had this sense of freedom. And he, he noticed that nobody really reprimanded him very much for the antics he got up to, you know. And he was quite reckless at times. He'd leap about the place and we'd all be very quiet doing our, our drawings or paintings in life class. And then John would suddenly get bored with it all and he'd start laughing like a hyena very quietly. And it, then it would get up to a great crescendo. And um, we were all trying to keep a straight face and carry on, till in the end we couldn't. Um, and the whole place was in an uproar because he'd start leaping around, leaping on June's knee and, um, and do, doing silly antics. And just being, he was a, a total clown. And, of course, I was very receptive to that. <laughs> well, he had a nickname for you, didn't he, because of... Oh, because I used to laugh at everything. Yeah. Yes, he, he called me Halloween. Halloween. <laughs> but he used to make little songs up. We'd, we'd be walking down to the bus stop after college, myself and my friend Anne, and um, he'd be carrying the bags, you see. We, we always had portfolio. I took work home every night, and we had bags full of brushes and paints and boxes of this and that. And he was very, very gentlemanly in that respect. He always took the bags off us, because he never carried anything home. And he'd walk down Bold Street with the bags, and he, he used to sing a little ditty, Carry Annie bag down Bold Street, or carry, carry Helly bag down Bold Street. You know? <laughs> but he was always singing and making up rhymes and poems, you know, constantly. And you as well, you were really into your fashion and your clothes making. And he, 
he sort of wormed his way in, didn't he? He and did, yes. Um, I, um, I wasn't really into fashion yet, but I used to make all my own clothes. Yeah. I really wanted to be a straightforward portrait painter, which is my which is my big thing that I always wanted to do. And I still do that, actually. I never really gave it up. I'm back into it now. But, um, yes, uh, John used to say, uh, well, you've got a sewing machine at home. Would you mind taking my trousers in and making them really, really tight? And um, so he'd... Um, I'd take them home in the evening, run them up on my mum's um, treadle machine we had then, and uh, next morning take them in, and he had drain pipes, you see. So uh, he used to give me a little sketch or a scribble in exchange for the jobs I was doing for him. And I made him once a leather tie because he said, um, oh, but I hate bloody hate ties. And I said, well, you'll wear one if I make you one. So I made him a black leather tie, skinny, a skinny string tie, a bit like the American ties but a bit wider the, the american cowboy ties but a bit wider and um longer of course so um yes so he loved that and so every time i did the jobs and another time i made him a black leather waistcoat and um so he gave me a lot of his drawings in the end and i don't know why he parted with them really but i gave him a yellow sweater that he liked i had a, a yellow hand-knitted aran sweater which was too big for me and the sleeves were down here because my auntie thought um, all students had to have long beatniky sleeves and sweaters that were too big for in, in the late 50s, you know. So my auntie Kitty knitted me this sweater that she was very proud of. and uh, But it was too big for me. And John said, I'll have it. I love that. So anyway, I swapped it for a book of drawings. So there you go. But, you know, there were lots of, uh, lots of funny um, anecdotes of those days. And... Together with George and Paul as well, we, as I said before with the rehearsals, some days when we didn't have to go into college or an odd day off here and there, we'd get the, um, the ferry at, at um, Liverpool Pierhead and we'd cross the river and go. they'd play their guitars all the way on the boat. Nobody took any notice of them. <laughs> Paul McCartney, George Harrison, John Lennon. Not, not a hair was turned. And they'd be playing the guitars on the boat and then we'd go, we, we'd go to Seacombe because it was cheaper. And then we'd walk right along the promenade to New Brighton. And we'd go and sit by Perch Rock, the, uh, which is still there, the big, the big sort of castly thing. And uh, the, we'd plonk on the, st on the sandstone blocks that were on the, in the sand full of green moss and seaweed and things. <laughs> Throw a towel down on there. We'd sit on there and they would play all afternoon and entertain us and it was just brilliant and nobody really took any notice you know the people on the beach and people looking at, even if it was you know a damp day we'd still go and um they just sort of stand there and look and then wander off you know but they were just brilliant and um and this was the birth of the Beatles I think <laughs> you mentioned before um that you know you used to exchange some of the clothes you'd make for mm -hmm. his sketches do you think it's at that point that he started to to develop a style and he maybe thought you know he could be serious and present himself as a musician um i think he wanted to be cool and because gene vincent had black leather trousers he wanted he wanted that look you know he wanted he wanted to be the first looking like the american rock and roll stars you know and and john always even after that he always had a great sense of dress he loved clothes because you can see on all the millions of photographs, he always had new stuff and interesting clothes as well. 
and uh, he was quite dandified. When John left college, because he was more or less forced out, but he was ready to go because by this time his music had developed and Alan Williams started managing them and got them the gigs in Hamburg. So he went off to Hamburg and he and Sin were, were seriously knotted together by then. And they they did adore each other, absolutely. Sin, Sin was a, a wonderful stabling influence on John. She, um, she had a family, and because he wasn't quite sure where he was with family, she, he, he blended into their family very well. Mrs. Powell was lovely, and at first she was a bit, a bit funny about him because she thought he looked too, too common or scousy or whatever, you know, so... Um, but they, uh, Cynthia soon tamed him, and her brothers gave John some nice uh, Harris tweed jackets, which he started wearing, you know, and he looked good in them. And I think he's, that's when he started to think, well, there are other things you can wear that are good, you know. But um, anyway, for, for form, performance, it was always something in leather and things like that, so um, that was different. So, yes, um, she was a great influence on him in those years because he needed that little bit of stability, and he knew he had that behind him when he was away, and of course when they when they when Celia Cynthia got pregnant and they got married etc. It was nice. He was happy with all that. You know, it's, uh, it was um, it was wonderful, and they were very much in love. She was a good influence on him because she was so calm and very very clever intellectually. She was, you know, she was she she sort of she helped him calm himself down a bit. And um, he was just having fun then. Everything for John was having fun. Laughs. It's all, even with the Beatles, that's all they wanted to do, have a great big laugh. But it soon became a bit much for them. <laughs> do you think that the Beatles had quite an impact on your life as they become more successful? They meant a lot in my life, all of them, all, all the boys. I mean, obviously, I didn't see much of George. I didn't know Ringo because he came along later. And when John left college, I went. Um, I finished my three years at the art school, and I went on a scholarship to Rome to study fine arts, portraits, and things like that. And um, so I was away for about a year and a half. But all that time I was away, they were just beginning to hit the headlines. And Cynthia used to send me pictures and send me letters of what they were doing and all the rest of it. And um, finally, she said to me. Um, Helen, you should be part of all this. They're looking for all sorts of lovely leather clothes now, and, and here's you that can make them. Why don't you come back and, you know, get, do that, make those things you used to make for us at college? And she said, "Get you should be part of this swinging 60s stuff, not stuck over there studying hard. So I was having a great time in Italy, and I thought, well, why should I give up this life to go back to Liverpool, you know, which I, I loved Liverpool, but I was just having such a great time. And I was... I was really living for my portraits in those days as well because I was painting one person they'd recommend to somebody else and so it went on. I was doing all right and um, painting lots of um, sort of celebi people and people's children and fathers and grandfathers and all sorts of things like that. And I was enjoying it. And then um, I decided in the end it might be time to come home and think about doing something else. But in between that time I was um, painting fabrics for a very, very uh, illustrious sort of couture house in Rome as a part-time job um, because I was looking in their window one day in Piazza di Spagna and a girl came out and said, where did you buy that dress? This has always been my life's history. 
what I wore, people always ask me, because they have. And this girl said, this is beautiful. She said, the fabric is beautiful. I said, it's painted. I painted the design on it. So she pulled me into the shop, and I met the two sisters who were running this beautiful um, upmarket couture shop. And um, Sorelli Fontana, they were called. And, um, and they asked me would I do some painting for them on fabrics for people like Sophia Loren and Claudia Cardinale and all these Cinecita stars of that era. And so there I picked up what I needed to learn about couture fashion and how things were put together. And it was really fascinating. I was only there doing paintings on fabrics and I'd take them in after I'd done them at home, stack of stack of florally designs on the front panels of things. And when I went in, they were always very happy to show me around the atelier and I watched the girls sewing and I watched how they were doing the insides and and I picked up a heck of a lot from that. And so I decided then that um, when I came home, I'd start doing leather clothes and open a boutique in Liverpool, which is what I did. And the first customers through the door, of course, were John and Cynthia. Sin did say, he'll help you get set up, he'll back you and all that. But I didn't, I didn't need the backing. I'd saved about £60. My dad gave me another 100 or something. And um, I found um, a little place to, near the top of Bold Street um, with two floors. So I had one floor, which was a sort of reception and showroom. And the upper floor was where we sew, and a cutting room at the back. And then the girls on the top floor were sewing the things together. And it was very successful for a few years, I think three years. And then I got married and went to live in Brussels. But did the same thing when I got there as well. Then I had my daughter. Can you remember what the first thing was that was sold? So it was was Cynthia and John through the door. Yes. What did they buy? Uh, I made Cynthia a suede suit, which had uh, knickerbockers. It was a tan-coloured suede, and it had a little tab just below the knee with the button on it. And um, they were the pants, quite tight-fitting pants. And I, and the jacket that went over it was a double-breasted mock tartan jacket. And when I say mock tartan, it was a tanny brown background, and it had red, blue, and green stripes in a tartan design, which we appliqued onto the suede before we put the jacket together. And there was a Baker Boy cap to go with it, which was also tartaned, with, with strips of suede this way and that way. And that was the first thing I made for Sin. And, um, of course, John um, ordered his caps from me, and so I was making a few caps for him at the time as well. And um, odd things, I, mean, I think I made him another waistcoat after that. I didn't make him any trousers because I knew somebody that could make men's trousers and I couldn't be bothered making men's trousers. I didn't like measuring them, really. <laughs> I, was, I was too shy to say which side. <laughs> I thought, in those days, I thought it was in the middle somewhere. <laughs> but, um, yes, yeah, so, yes, I made a lot of things for Sin, little little leather suits and dresses and things like this. And you had to make quite a few caps for John because he kept losing them, is that I right? I know, yeah. The first, <laughs> the first one I made was the one that I'm reproducing now, two plaits across the front and two buttons at the side, black leather. And um, I made it in such a way, he said, I've got to wear a hat that I can put on the back of my head because I want the photographers to see my face. So, <laughs> so this is why when you see pictures of John in my cap, it's not on the top of his head, it's on the back of his head. And so um, he went, I think they went to film, well, I don't know whether it was a hard day's night or help, 
I think it was when they were in the snow, so I think that was help. And the first day they were there on location, that's right, it was in Austria, and the first day they were there, somebody snatched his cap off his head. <laughs> so um, he missed it then for the rest of the filming. It was on at the beginning, and then, then, it, then it had gone. So he ordered a few more from me, and uh, I made some plain ones as well as the ones with the buttons on. Mm. And then, um, yes, I kind of lost touch of them for a short time. But when they moved to Kenwood, I saw a little bit more of both of them because I went down there a couple of times to visit. And, um, sometimes, uh, once John was not there, another time John was there, and we had a we had a great. We stayed up all night talking, drinking. <laughs> <laughs> and then the next day, um, John said, um, we, we all had slightly sore heads the next day, actually. And John said, how would you like to go into the West End today in the Rolo? And I said, oh, yes, great. Thank you. Yes, we'll do that. He gets out of the car. We go to, to King's Road to look in the shops and things like that. And he never came back after that. That was that. We don't know where he went to, but Cynthia started telling me that things were going a bit peculiar. I don't think, don't know whether he was seeing Yoko then or not. It was just before, maybe. But uh, he was being a bit naughty. And so I was sorry about that, because I missed not I missed seeing him the next day, you know, before I went home. And um, then I went on another occasion when he wasn't there, uh, just to see Sin, because she was a bit upset and things had gone a bit awful. I think, I think the time... That time was when John had just come back from um, America after seeing Elvis Presley because he brought Julian uh, an Indian headdress. Julian was about three and a half or four, and it was massive, this thing, and he was running... I, rem I always remember him running around the house with this massive headdress trailing along the floor behind him. <laughs> it was funny. But, um, yes, and he was telling us all about Elvis that time and how... Um, they walked into the house terrified and he was lounging watching telly and he never switched the telly off all the time they were there <laughs> and it got on their nerves you know? <laughs> but um i think i think they're all a bit um bemused and a little bit cautious of you know being naughty or being hard-faced with him in any way because they thought it, they really revered him as the king john said and then in the end, I think they had a little bit of a jam session. I'm not sure, but he, I remember something about they played together for a bit. But he was, Elvis was on, go, on guard, John said, because he didn't like being outnumbered or um, outshone. And I think the Beatles were a threat to him at the time. But they'd be dying to see him because they, they adored him, you know. And so when was the last time you spoke to him? I know one of the last times you've seen him, well, the last time you've seen him, was that in the car? And was that when you went to visit him and Cynthia? The last time I saw him was when we were when he never came back to the yeah, car, Kenwood. Yeah. But I saw him. I spoke to him again um, a long time later, about 1974 or five. 74, I think it must have been. And um, he rang to speak to Julian. We, we were in Cynthia had moved back. She'd married Roberto Bassanini in between, and that didn't work out. So she moved back to um, Hoylake. And I went down to help her pack up bits and pieces and furniture and things 
like like idiots packing up furniture near Mrs. Beetle. <laughs> she should have had the the removal men doing all that. But we were we were packing up boxes of china and boxes of this and boxes of that. And we came back literally in the van with the removal people. And um, we sat in the back. There was uh, Cynthia and Julian and myself. And we were sitting on sort of wood, wooden seats in the back of this lorry. How ridiculous. You know, we should have come in a taxi home or something. But anyway, that's the way it was. And we had the dog as well. Um, the dog's name was oh, Sandy, not Sandy. began with an S. Susie, Black Labrador. And Su- Susie, oh, all the way up, she was making rude noises and smells. And it was <laughs> turning us turning us over. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so Cynthia then bought a little car. Or she, I think she rented this house, a bungalow in Hoylake, to begin with, because she wanted to buy a house further out in the country where she could be quiet, which she did in North Wales after that. But uh, when we were in the bungalow one evening, um, the phone rang, and it was John for Julian. And they had a lovely chat, and I think Julian was... Um, quite happy and all the rest of it talking to his daddy and then um he said how's your mum and he said oh she's uh, she's fine do you want to speak to her and cynthia said no i'm not speaking to him not tonight said helen will so he said your friend your friend helen's here dad he said oh put her on so anyway we had a lovely conversation and stupid me i i was saying things to him like um John, when are you coming back? Because everybody misses you. Liverpool have been deserted by you. You know, you've got to come back or they'll never forgive you. He said, oh, I miss Liverpool and I miss all my friends so much. And he said, I am coming back. He said, there are times when I feel melancholy about Liverpool and my family, the girls, his cousins and sisters. And um, he said, um, I'm trying to get my green card and I'm on the verge of it. I, I, you know, but it's so complicated because once I leave America to go on a holiday to Liverpool or anywhere in London or whatever, he said, I won't get back into the States. And he said, this is definitely my home now. And he said, so as soon as I've got that green card, I'm, I'm definitely coming first to Liverpool and then to London. And he said, um, also, he said, uh, can I ask you a favour? And I asked, I said, yes, of course, John, I'll help it any way I can. Delighted. And he said, will you send me a string of black puddings and an art school scarf? Now, I said, well, the string of black puddings could be difficult because (laughs) I don't know whether you get them through customs in New York. But I'll certainly try, and I'll try for the art school scarf. I said, Ravenscroft and Willis that used to make them have gone out of business now. They used to be in Hardman Street near the Philharmonic. And um, I said, that might be difficult. And I'd lost my scarf. I didn't know where. Otherwise, I would have given it to him. So I tried everywhere. And everybody we were at college with, have you still got an art school scarf? Because John would love it. Nobody had one. They'd all lost them or thrown them away or something. So I never, ever got them. And it really upset me when it, only a couple of years later, you know, what happened to him. I thought, why didn't I find him that scarf? But I did try. But, um, yeah. Those are his last words. String of black puddings and an art school scarf. To me, anyway, last words to me. Yeah, it's very sad. And what about Julian? Do you still keep in touch with Julian? I do, actually, yes. I see Julian occasionally in France because he has a place uh, uh, near uh, Monaco. Um, We have a place not too far away that we go to for holidays. 
And, um, yeah, we have lots of what we call cuppers and long chats. <laughs> he never drinks when he comes to us anyway. And um, it's always, no, cup of tea and a long chat. Nothing more. Piece of cake, cup of tea. And, um, and he's a, an absolutely charming and lovely man. He's gorgeous. He's, he's had a hard time. And he's, he said to me, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, working at, I'm working at everything, trying to reinvent myself. Because, um, you know, he's under his dad's shadow constantly. And he loved his father very, very much. But, you know, he's been, he was hard done to for a few years. And it's, it's definitely affected him in some ways. But uh, he's a very, very charming and very nice guy. Very, very talented in different ways. You know, he does beautiful pho- photography. He has exhibitions all over the world of, of his photography. He's writing books, children's books, which are very, very interesting. And um, I think he's starting to write more music again, so he said. But, yeah, other than that, I can't say much about Julian because he's a very, very private person. Yeah, it's nice that you still keep in touch with yeah, him, though. Yeah, it's lovely. So tell me a little bit more about the caps. Obviously, you made them all those years ago for John, mm-hmm. but you're very much bringing them back now, aren't you? Well, yes, it was very strange, actually. I was doing a little talk in the, the now art college in Liverpool about three, two years ago, 18, yeah, two or three years ago, about fashion in the 60s and the art school and the, and the Beatles and friendship with John again. And the principal was putting photographs up on a big big screen. So um, he put a, a photograph of John wearing the cap on one slide. And um, I told them the story I've just related to you. And at the end of the seminar, I had a queue of people asking me would I make the cap again. And it happened once before um, as well when I went to a John Memorial concert in London with Cynthia at um, uh, George Martin's um, recording studios and it was a fabulous concert and there again I had people asking me and I thought oh my god that was 50, nearly 50 years ago anyway um, I said the same to the people that were asking me about this I said I haven't, I haven't got a, a workshop anymore I don't have a factory and I don't have anybody to sew them for me so um, I thought about it for two minutes <laughs> like the following day and my, my daughter said mum you should do it why don't you she said, nobody's ever done that cap you know, nobody's even copied it, as far as we know. It might have been slightly copied, but not many people would put the handwork in that went into it, you see. And that's why it was different. So I thought about it, and um, I found two people, um, two companies that wanted to make them for me. So um, I, I started making them with a company in Liverpool. And um, here we are today. I'm selling them all over the world. Well, thank you so very much for coming in. It's my pleasure. To me, you've got some wonderful memories. Oh, thank you so much. If you've enjoyed this episode of Beetle City, please remember to review, rate and subscribe on your favourite podcast app. We can also find all episodes from our first two series. And all other episodes of Series 1, including the exclusive interview with Paul McCartney, can now be found on the Liverpool Echoes YouTube channel. Join us next week when we meet Liverpool DJ and radio presenter Pete Price, who has his own Beatles claim to fame.